You're listening to Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. Here's your host, Ed Yonka, Director of Communications and Public Policy. Thanks, Max, and welcome to this episode of Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. The pandemic has focused the attention of many, and some for the very first time, on conditions in our jails and prisons. Recognizing that it is impossible to engage in social distancing, knowing the conditions are not sanitary, and seeing a lack of adequate health care within these systems has raised an alarm for many people about the human lives that are trapped inside those facilities. But there are dangers that existed in these facilities far before the pandemic. Prisons and jails are especially dangerous and traumatizing for people who are transgender. And we know that transgender men and women have disproportionate levels of contact with the criminal legal system, contacts that often flow from high rates of poverty, homelessness, and discrimination. These obstacles for those who are transgender lead not only to more police interactions, but ultimately to higher rates of incarceration. And then the problems really become more pronounced. Basic fundamental questions about where a transgender inmate is housed and whether that is in a facility that aligns with their gender identity can be critical and determine whether someone is subjected to physical, emotional, and sexual abuse. We're gonna talk today about two cases that address these issues. One is a recently filed complaint at the federal level about federal prisons. And the other is an ongoing case directed by the ACLU of Illinois that addresses prison conditions here in the state of Illinois. Recently, the ACLU of Illinois and the national LGBTQ team filed a complaint in a lawsuit in Southern Illinois on behalf of Christina Iglesias, a transgender prisoner in federal custody. We wanna talk about the issues that were raised in that complaint. We're pleased to be joined today by one of the lawyers on the case, Taylor Brown, a staff attorney with the LGBT and HIV project for the national ACLU. Taylor, welcome to Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. Hi, Ed. Thank you. And thank you for covering this case. So I want to start and, and talk a little bit, I think, by what we always hear about and see and, and, and comes up in an instance like this about the overrepresentation of people who are transgender in our prisons and jails and, and frankly, in our entire criminal legal system. And, and I just wonder how you sort of look at that issue writ large and, and, and what you see as the factors that, that lead to that problem. Yeah, so those factors are very similar to why we see an overrepresentation of black and brown people in prisons. Um, I believe that it stems from systemic societal inequities in terms of opportunities for education, opportunities for work, and just flat out discrimination that trans people face um, every day in their lives, you know, in personal interactions. And so where you aren't able to make a living for yourself or provide for yourself in sort of the mainstream economy, um, many transgender people do um, have to engage in underground economies um, to survive, and that exposes them to the criminal justice system, and so they end up 
incarcerated um, um, or other um, interactions with the criminal justice system. You know, in, in Illinois, here in Illinois, uh, the ACLU has already been challenging the inadequacy of health care uh, in state prisons for prisoners, for people who are transgender. Um, but the Inglesias case involves people uh, in the federal system. And as I understand it, that one of the issues for, for Ms. Inglesias in this case is, is really the, the fundamental question of where she's housed. Uh, and that that housing is determined by a rule that the Trump administration has recently changed. Can you talk about that rule a little bit and sort of how it was changed and what it means? Yeah, so as soon as the Trump administration um, came into office, throughout the administrative state, and that includes the Department of Education, Health and Human Services, Bureau of Prisons, they started implementing these rules that rolled back some of the um, regulations that the Obama administration had put into place. The Obama administration um, put regulations in place that made clear what many courts have already decided um, and what many state legislatures have already decided, that sex includes gender identity, um, and therefore includes transgender people. So when Trump came into office, he rolled back um, those regulations and that included in the Bureau of Prison through an update um, and issuance of what was called the Transgender Offender Manual. And so in this manual, um, before the guidelines were, you should take into consideration the, the person's gender identity, their transgender status, and their, relatively, and their relative safety. Um, but now the default is quote unquote biological sex. And again, that term is up for grabs being debated. The Supreme Court clearly just stated that sex discrimination um, includes um, sexual orientation and trans status. Um, and so it's hard to understand, you know, why this administration would keep up with this, this kind of policy. The Obama administration had expanded the rule, which again, as I understand it, had sort of evolved over time, so that gender identity could at least be part of the reason, and the Trump administration just slammed the door on that. Exactly. And the Obama administration did that in response to what we know happens to transgender women who are incarcerated with men. Um, they are exposed to higher rates of rape, and that's from the prison staff as well as other um, people they're incarcerated with. Violence all around and just general dehumanization um, and just being mistreated um, left and right in, in prisons, um, and trans men as well, um, but we see it more with trans women. A few years ago, Congress passed something called PREA, or the, the Prison Rape Elimination Act, to try to get at this kind of sexual abuse in, uh, that, that took place in prisons and try to reduce it. It, it was the effort to, to house people consistent with their gender identity, an effort to try to address concerns under PREA? Absolutely. You know, I am come from a critical perspective most of the time. Um, and so PREA did have that intention in mind. It does have that in its guidance. However, um, PREA has no teeth in terms of a cause of action that people can use whenever facilities are not going by PREA, PREA guidelines or violating PREA guidelines. Um, and that's really the problem. You know, you have a rule, but it has no teeth. Therefore, people aren't incentivized to um, uh, to comply. And I can, I'm sure I don't need to tell you, but prisons are not the best place in the world. Typically, they're ran horribly, um, and they just don't comply with many laws, including the Constitution. Um, I, I want to turn and, and talk about the client in this particular case. You know, I was struck 
I'll just say, when I first read the complaint in this case about what literally was just a nightmare that she has been living through in federal prison. And I wonder if, I don't even know where to begin in terms of describing that to people, but I wonder if for our listeners, if you could share just a little bit of what you know she's been through over the last several years. So during her entire time in BOP custody, uh, Ms. Iglesias has been housed with men. Um, she's a transgender woman. Um, she has been receiving hormone therapy for a number of years, yet despite all of that, she's still housed with men and placed in great danger. Um, and we've seen that danger play out in multiple incidents of rape, sexual assault, beatings. She was kidnapped at one point in a cell with a, a man who did not want to be housed with her. And the, um, the staff had to physically come in and remove him to save her. Um, and yet still they refuse to provide her with the necessary medical care she needs and to house her appropriately. And her life has been a nightmare. And this is a story that is repeated time and time and time again. We get letters from all over the country from transgender women who are in male facilities um, and who are being subjected to this kind of treatment. Um, and again, dehumanized by the staff, um, called names, called terrible transphobic names. And it's just the most horrible of experience that, again, any person who's incarcerated still has a lot, still has a lot of rights um, in terms of protections from the Constitution. And we want to make sure that those, that, you know, that the prisons are complying, but they have not in Ms. Iglesias' is the case and in many of the other cases that we've seen. A cellmate didn't want to be housed with her and as a result took her hostage in the cell until prison officials force their way in. Yeah. I, I can't even imagine how traumatic that must have been and just what that would do to someone. She lives in fear for her life every single day. She lives in fear of assault every single day. Um, a hit has been placed on her saying that if another incarcerated person told the other um, folks in the population that if they could facilitate um, him getting into her facility to hurt her or someone could get in there to hurt her, that um, he would pay $500. It's just unimaginable. And the prison staff have done nothing at BOP. And again, Ms. Iglesias has been her best advocate. Um, she has advocated for herself in some of the most amazing ways in terms of writing complaints, letting staff know we have those records. And it just shows, you know, the, the deliberate indifference that the, the staff have, have showed towards her needs and the danger that she's in. Yeah, and the idea that she would help to have to self-advocate, you know, be, a, be her own best advocate in that way is, it, you can imagine just how draining that is while living in fear of your life. So, so one thing is, you, you mentioned she is receiving hormone treatment currently, but getting that treatment both in, in the federal setting, but also in other state prisons, including here in Illinois, can often be very difficult in, in terms of yeah. just that basic health care. Is that right? That's absolutely right. Um, some states have what are known as freeze frame policies, meaning that if you don't come into the prison already on hormone therapy, you're not allowed to, they won't initiate it, which is just absolutely silly because, you know, if you come into prison and you get diabetes, they're going to give you treatment, no matter if you didn't have diabetes. Not necessarily before. in Illinois, given our prison healthcare system, but that's yeah, a different yeah, story. Yeah, I mean, you would hope, you would hope. But yes, it can be very difficult because A, just general hostility toward transgender people, the lack of competent providers, and just the deficiency in the medical programs in general. Transgender people are, you know, of, of least concern for a lot of prisons. I would say all prisons. The way in which this healthcare gets decided, the way in which it's it's handled, 
is again, not in the same way that we would typically think of where you, you see a doctor, the doctor knows that you need X medication and prescribes it. You know, oftentimes in, in these situations, there's some committee that has to approve this. Is there any rationale for that sort of, you know, kind of oversight of this one single kind of care? Absolutely not. The treating physician should be the main person who's interacting with the patient, who who knows them day in, day out, and, you know, can assess their need. The idea that that person then has to refer the case to a committee who may have never met Christina, they have no idea what she looks like, they haven't heard her story from her own words, they just don't know her, and they're making this decision based on unclear guidelines to us anyway. Yeah, it's just very rare and just shows again they're singling out transgender people for differential treatment and and we should say there is a standard of care for someone who is transgender and i mean there's a there's the world standard of care it can be followed in these areas Absolutely. You know, the World Professional Association for Transgender Health publishes guidelines, and that includes guidelines for incarcerated persons um, in consultation with carceral experts, people who have served as medical directors of um, prisons and um, other facilities, um, custodial facilities. And yeah, so these guidelines still apply in prisons, yet the Trump administration has decided to rely on what's called the Transgender Executive Council that, again, we don't know if these people have any experience in treating transgender people, where they're from, sort of what their qualifications are. It's all done in a very sort of, in, in my mind, a very mysterious, secret way. I should just add quickly, in the case in Illinois we have around health care for transgender prisoners, there's a transgender committee which literally has no one on it who has ever treated a person who's uh, transgender gender, and they make decisions based on paperwork, never having seen a patient. Uh, you know, when you hear it stated, you know, factually and just as the facts are, it's, it's mind-boggling um, that, you know, this is allowed to go on, and it shouldn't be going on under the law. And so that's why we have to bring these cases. What does it do to someone who is transgender? I want to start with just the medical piece of it, to be denied, you know, basic medical care or, or basic items uh, for social transitioning, how does that weigh on, you know, one's mind and one's psyche every day? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can speak from personal experience as a trans woman. You know, having gender dysphoria is, is awful. I guess sometimes it's very hard to articulate to someone who doesn't have gender dysphoria, um, but it's this idea that you wake up every single day knowing that you're in a body that doesn't match who you are, and people treat you differently, people treat you horribly, and it causes severe psychological distress that can manifest into physical symptoms. And so when we think about classical symptoms out like depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, that's what it's lived with. And when it's left untreated and it goes on and on, plus you're subjected to physical violence, um, sexual violence, um, and just dehumanization, it's horrible. It leads to, to death ultimately for a lot of people. Um, and it sounds severe because it is severe. So that's the medical piece. You know, gender dysphoria is, you know, has been depathologized. You know, it's no longer um, considered a disease. Um, right. It's just a recognition of the stress that is caused by not having a body that's congruent with who you are naturally. When, when one combines that with the ongoing physical threat, what effect does that have on somebody just in terms of their life? Is it, does it just make it almost unbearable? I think that our client, um, Ms. Iglesias, 
she has a release date. And so the goal while she's in prison is to receive the things that she needs to serve her time, to receive, you know, what she's legally entitled to in terms of healthcare, and to hopefully reenter society and get back on her feet. And so, you know, the idea that you're stuck in this situation where you're not receiving the healthcare, they're actually harming her, making her mental health a lot worse, potentially, again, exposing her to the risk of death by another um, incarcerated person. It's just horrible. It's absolutely horrible. So what the complaint that was filed uh, recently by the ACLU, what is it that you're actually, that we're actually looking for in that complaint? What are we hoping to compel the, the prison officials in, in Ms. Iglesias' case to do? Yeah, so Ms. Iglesias has been requesting gender-affirming care in her particular case. Um, she requires surgery and she requires um, um, permanent hair removal. Mm -hmm. um, she's also requesting to be transferred um, to a facility that matches her, her status as a woman. And she's also requesting um, access, which would, which would likely happen just by being in a female facility um, because they have the canteen items that, would, that can help in social transition in terms of makeup and things that um, a lot of trans people need. Um, to express their gender expression until, you know, they've had access to care that can um, allow them to live more authentically. Is there, you know, when, when you litigate these kinds of cases around the country, is there really any rationale or any reason that, that officials give for why they don't provide this kind of care for someone? I mean, it, the things you've named, surgery, which is which is part of transitioning the uh, treatment being housed where you know, consistent with your gender identity those don't seem like radical things and, and I just wonder if there's ever a, a kind of an argument that you hear or have heard from public officials about about why those things don't happen well in the law the courts tend to give prisons um, a great deal of deference in terms to the uh, in terms of the day-to-day -day running um, because they believe that the prisons are best situated um, to know that. Why should a court step in and tell a prison what to do? You know, they're not on the ground. Um, and so that's often what we see raised. It's this idea, they say that it's a safety concern, it's a security concern. And that's the defense they raise. It's, it's found to be, you know, just pretext all, uh, all of the times in many of the cases that I've seen. And a pretext for what? You know, that's up for debate, but I think it's a pretext for just truly not viewing transgender people as human, um, seeing their worth um, and providing and just incompetence in terms of um, the care that they need. If this case is successful, if the ACLU is successful on behalf of Ms. Iglesias, um, could it have an impact on this Trump administration rule and on prisons across the country? In other words, could it, could it help others beyond just this one instance? So that would be the hope. You know, this, whatever ruling that we get from the district court will apply to um, these parties. Um, but, you know, that's the signal to the administration that, you know, this court has struck down this rule. More lawsuits will come that will likely strike down this rule. It's best that you, you know, stop wasting taxpayer money defending a rule that is losing in every other context, employment, healthcare, schools, what have you. That's what we would hope. But as an attorney who has done this for a couple of years now, I can tell you that, especially the government, when they're sued, they just do not tend to act rationally as we would hope. Um, so ideally, again, um, and if this was to go up on appeal, it would affect all of um, the states within that circuit, which would also be helpful. But 
yeah, I, I, I don't anticipate the Trump administration acting um, rational. I'm going to I'm going to um, call on your expertise, as you say, as a lawyer who, who litigates these cases. What's the landscape look like across the country? Are there are there places, you know, when I think of what we've seen here in Illinois and then this case in the federal prisons, is there anybody who's getting this right? Is there any place where we're we're seeing, you know, just basic respect and dignity afforded to people who are transgender, you know, when they're in the criminal legal system? No, I mean, <laughs> I'll, I'll be honest, it's a no for me. While places like New York and California have rules that are, you know, quote unquote progressive and are aimed at treating, you know, trans people with dignity and humanity, um, no person should be incarcerated, in my opinion, especially for a lot of the crimes that trans people are are convicted of. But I think this goes to the difference between sort of social societal change and legal change. So we can have rules in place, um, but the people who who administer those rules, so that's going to be the wardens, the prison staff, um, all of those people. Um, you know, we still time we still tend to find even in places like New York and California, which are lauded as you know liberal hubs. Um, for trans people, that's just not the case, and they're still being subjected to abuse. What's the answer to that? Is it is it is it more public awareness? Is it more public attention? Is it you know calling on leaders more to you know governors and others to call this out? What in your mind sort of gets us there in the long run? Yeah, it's a multi pronged sort of thing because again, the prison system, you know, there's a lot of other things aside from trans animus that contribute to why um, the prison system is so bad, you know, being privatized, um, incentivized by the state, all of those things. And then just sort of the systemic, like I was saying, the systemic inequities that lead to people going into prison. If you haven't had food, you may steal some food. Um, um, you may end up in prison. It's like those things that we have to really look at. So changing how we charge people and how we put people into prison and just our law in general, um, addressing these societal inequities. Um, but ultimately, I think that, yes, the state really has to step in and start enforcing these rules. And that means firing people. And I think that we as attorneys, we need to sue these people left and right until they get it. Um, I find that, you know, once you hit someone in the pockets, that's when they tend to understand um, that this is serious. Um, and it shouldn't take that because you would hope that human to human, you know, a person would see someone who is vulnerable. But again, that's me uh, wishing for a pipe dream, apparently. Um, yeah, it's it's a lie. Ultimately, I think the best solution would be stop incarcerating people and find alternatives. I, I just have to tell you, in the last couple of years of doing this podcast, I don't think we've ever had a lawyer on who didn't see the answers just suing as many people as possible. So you're in good company. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, being in impact litigation, our resources are limited. And, you know, our project is focused on the most vulnerable members of our community. And that that's trans people and that's people of color. And so in my mind, that's where our resources need to be devoted. And unfortunately, a large population are in prison and we need to uphold their rights just as we would uphold anyone else's rights. Well, Taylor Brown, thank you so very much for joining us today and having this conversation. And um, we look forward to some updates on this case, hopefully successfully on behalf of Ms. Inglesias as we move along. Absolutely, and I'm looking forward to a win. Now that we've had a chance to talk with Taylor about our case against the Federal Bureau of Prisons for the treatment of Ms. Iglesias, we want to switch and focus for just a moment on the state case that I mentioned at the top of the show, 
Monroe v. Jeffries. This is a case against the Illinois Department of Corrections for their treatment of transgender prisoners. We're pleased to be joined now by staff attorney Gerlandi Gadetti, who is part of the legal team for that case. Gerlandi, welcome to Talking Liberties. Thanks, Ed. It's good to be here. So when we talk to Taylor about the case in the federal prisons, a lot of issues, there are a lot of issues in that case and a lot of things that are happening. And, you know, one of them is just about the basic provision of health care, which is, of course, really at the core of the Monroe case. And I wonder if you could talk about uh, sort of what that is and, and what's happening here in Illinois with the Department of Corrections. Healthcare is what Monroe is all about. And, you know, here we are, hard to remember exactly how far into the case we are. I want to say almost a couple of years. We're definitely nine months past the preliminary injunction, and we still haven't seen uh, the types of changes that the court ordered or that the Constitution required. But to, you know, get down to basics and your question, we've got a department here that denies and delays at all levels the basic medical care that transgender individuals with gender dysphoria need, whether that's social transition, the ability to present consistent with their gender identity, accessing hormone therapy. They definitely don't allow any type of surgery, even, even in cases where you have patients who are so dysphoric that they are self-mutilating and suicidal. Um, so that's, you know, those are the high stakes that we have in the Illinois Department of Corrections. And, and one of the things that, that you're facing is, and, and we talked a little bit about this with Taylor from the federal system as well, is this committee that's charged or is making decisions about healthcare, but doesn't have any expertise in healthcare. How, how frustrating is that in terms of the way that clients feel about, you know, those people having control over their healthcare? I'm not a doctor, Ed, but it's pretty much common sense that you don't want folks who aren't doctors making decisions about your medical care. And that's exactly what the Department of Corrections has been doing. They've got this committee. Uh, it was initially called the Gender Dysphoria Committee. They've updated the names a few times, but not made any real changes to how they operate. And these are corrections staff, most of whom um, don't have any medical background or training. And the few on the committee who are doctors don't have any expertise in treating gender dysphoria. So as a result, you, uh, again, denials and delays that are not medically indicated, they're not medically justified. This is a class action suit, and without going deep into federal civil procedure, uh, the, the issue is here that you, you represent all of the people in the Department of Corrections who are transgender, who are affected by these policies, do you have any idea what that universe, what that, that number looks like in, in a state as big as Illinois? Well, you, you deny me the joy of going into federal CIVPRO, but uh, based <laughs> on the discovery we've gone through, I think um, the population is over 100. The, these are folks that are confirmed. Now, keep in mind, these are the folks IDOC knows about. Um, it's possible, if not likely, that there are many more individuals in the Department of Corrections who know that they don't provide adequate care, who fear for their safety because they're generally placed, they're virtually always placed based on their sex assigned at birth rather than based on their gender identity. Um, so folks may not be coming out. Yeah, and they, would, they just wouldn't identify in that way. Right. So you talk to a lot of these clients all the time, um, I know. How are they faring? They're struggling. 
uh, they've been struggling all along. And I think, you know, we, we try to manage expectations when we bring a case like this, because we know that litigation can go on for a long time and that change is slow. I think many of our clients were excited by the court's order. Uh, the court recognized that what the Department of Corrections was doing was very likely unconstitutional. And it ordered the department to take steps back in December, specific steps that they were supposed to take to prevent those constitutional violations. So of course, our clients see this, they see this court order and they think change is on the way. Uh, unfortunately, here we are in almost October and the department has not taken any meaningful steps towards the reforms that the court ordered. And so you recently filed a motion to try to bring in an expert from the outside to help them navigate just these changes. Is that, is that been the latest action in the case? That's right. Well, we believe that because the department has shown it's not capable of implementing these reforms on its own, that the court would benefit from, our clients would benefit from, the defendants would benefit from, an independent expert appointed by the court to oversee the implementation of the reforms that the court has ordered. Uh, so we filed last month a motion uh, asking the court to appoint that type of monitor, and that motion's pending before the court. Uh, we hope that we'll receive a favorable decision soon. Well, listen, Galandi, thanks for coming and, and sort of filling in you know, some of the, the, the pieces of this that we didn't get a chance to talk to uh, and to really bringing this home. And I hope you'll come back and talk about this case more as it, as it winds its way through the courts. My pleasure, anytime and hopefully with good news. If you wanna learn more about either one of these cases, we encourage you to visit our website at www.aclu-il.org. And thank you for listening to Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. Talking Liberties is produced by Max Bever. Content supervisor is Kimberly Kozeel. Our executive director is Colleen Connell. You can subscribe to this podcast and rate us. You can contact us directly at Talking Liberties, all one word, at aclu-il.org. So until next time, this is Talking Liberties, and we'll see you soon.